Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from Danny Fisher, chief executive of US distribution company FilmRise, about the growth of its own streaming channels and why leanback AVOD is the future. And Gonzalo Sagadia, chief executive of Onza, on the opening of the Spanish production company's new Miami base. New York-based FilmRise has carved out a niche for itself as a distributor of film and TV series via the likes of Amazon Prime, Roku, Pluto TV and Tubi, as well as its own portfolio of ad-supported streaming channels. The firm offers around 30,000 titles, acquiring content from around the world and using its own algorithms to determine untapped market opportunities. Co-founder and chief executive Danny Fisher spoke to Ollie Hammer about its strategy and why leanback or free ad-supported TV channels are the future. Co-founder and chief executive Danny Fisher spoke to Ollie Hammett about its strategy and why leanback or free ad-supported fast TV channels are the future. Streaming in 2020, you know, was just hugely increased because people are at home. I think in a post-pandemic world, I think we're going to still, I don't think we're going to see losing those users. For one, we'll still have a lot of remote working, number one. But number two is uh, audiences have discovered you know, new channels and new ways of looking at things. Uh, everything from, you know, the Wonder Woman release, you know, on HBO, uh, Wonder Woman 1984 release, you know, to what we're, we specialize in is the ad-supported free service. Uh, we, we're finding that the free ad-supported services are by far the, you know, the fastest growing services in the U.S. and across the world. Um, what we've done at FilmRise is we've developed a number of years ago, we've developed a proprietary data analytics algorithm set. And in 2020, we actually uh, infuse it with machine learning and automized process. And what we do is we identify content that users and audiences want to see irrespective of what the industry thinks so we don't we don't look at content and says oh well you know Netflix wants this HBO Max wants this so and so wants this we look at content and see the users want to see this what we're seeing in general is in terms of you know uh, you know massive audience disruption that we've been noticing uh, for a few years is that I, I look at the audiences have having becoming democratized in the sense that it used to be going back just a couple of years ago and let alone, you know, decades ago, uh, studios, distributors, exhibitors, etc. they determined what people want to see. And even today, to some extent, the subscription services, you know, the Netflixes, the Hulu, the, you know, HBO Max, uh, Disney Plus, uh, obviously, you know, they're very successful, but they pretty much determine, they determine the content and people watch the content. The What we find in the ad-supported space is that audiences don't have to have credit cards or even log in to try the Rogu channel, to try Pluto TV, the IMDb TV, which is Amazon's Avod service, Tubi, FilmRise has its own streaming network. You know, so what happens is that audiences can try things out, try other channels out, and in the ad-supported space, they're free with no strings attached, so they can just try things out. And and what happens is that the content that's streamed the most is the content that people want to see. And that's the content that earns the most money. Our model is, and much of the AVOD models are based on revenue share. It's a model we prefer. We're often offered license fees. We say, no, no, we'd rather have nothing upfront, no minimum guarantees. We'd like to just have, you know, our percentage of the rev share. And that's because we're, we've been very good at predicting 
streaming traffic or platform using our uh, analytics. And so what, what this means is that we have, you know, for years now, really, I guess for about eight years or so, but, you know, especially in the last two or three years, we've been acquiring content that we've identified has high demand and in many cases been completely off the radar. And, you know, case in point is recent acquisition uh, we've had of uh, the Rifleman, which is 60 or 70 years old. It's from the 50s. It's a four by three aspect ratio. It's black and white. And uh, we identified it you know, it was a bit of a surprise to us as really, really high demand, like higher demand than many very well-known TV shows. And uh, we've availed it on various platforms like the Roku channel, Pluto TV. And it's one of the most streamed free uh, and supported television shows in America right now. We've done this over and over again. We've done this with uh, early on with Forensic Files, uh, with Unsolved Mysteries. Both Forensic Files and Unsolved Mysteries were actually rebooted. We like to think that we had something to do with it in helping to popularize the shows. Midsummer Murders, another one from your neck of the woods. Uh, that was primarily a, you know, subscription television show. And we brought it, introduced it to the world of ad supported. And again, it's, you know, one of the top streaming uh, of free shows. So uh, we see continuing to do that o- over and over. And um, so you're saying things like the Rifleman, there's obviously a, a nostalgia element, and then there's a combination of, of new shows. What do you think it is about the AVOD model that attracts viewers and is attracting viewers right now? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, what I'd already mentioned that in the ad supported space, you don't need a credit card and you don't need to log in and so you can just try things out and you can hop around to any number of services and there are you know there are you know five or six you know major ones and then there are second tier ones like filmrise we, we believe uh, our streaming network is the largest independently owned free service and then you have you know actually hundreds thousands of you know uh, you know niche but you can try a lot of different things but what we have to understand is is the economics of it avod is free and i think this is going to you know we're seeing really really rapid growth in uh, internationally we're still seeing very rapid growth in the U.S., but not everybody can afford 10 subscription channels. And there are people who can't afford one subscription channel. It's kind of down to people who can afford internet. And that's pretty much you know, your vast majority in the U.S. and even around the world, you know, people have internet. But outside of internet, it's the ultimate cord cutting. You know, cord cutting was, you know, getting away from cable and then, you know, going to Netflix and all this. But, you know, we're, we're finding out that there's, there are audiences that one cannot afford 10 services, cannot afford five services, or maybe Maybe they're, you know, they will have their three main services. They'll have Netflix, they'll have Disney Plus, you know, Hulu, HBO Max, you know, but, the, you know, that's it. They're not going to go and get 10, 15 services. And they say, yeah, but you know what? See, so much of what we're, we see in the Avon space, certainly on the Filmrise, Filmrise streaming service, has about 30,000 movies and television episodes, um, most of which is not available on Netflix, most of it not available on HBO Max or Hulu. We do work with Netflix and HBO Max and uh, Hulu. We do have content there, but, you know, it's it's a, it's a small fraction of our library. So there's so much that we can offer uh, that is not uh, available on uh, on Netflix and on, on, on the major uh, you know, services. So I think it's it's choice, it's economics, and uh, it's a certain, I guess, type of audience. You know, the, the trade-off is it's free, but you have to devote some of your time to watching commercials. Now, there are people like me, snobs. People say, well, you know, how do you like your, you know, my own service. I said, I don't watch my service. So why not? Because it has commercials. I don't watch any of my, you know, my clients' services, my AVOT clients. Uh, it's because I'm not one of those people who, 
you know, would, are willing to put up the time, I would rather pay the subscription fee or, or, or whatever, or pay the transactional fee to watch things. However, I just represent a fraction of the audience universe. And I think what Avon has discovered is that there's a massive amount of audience that, you know, uh, I, I get emails every day from people who uh, just watch the film rights channel. And I could see, I could tell that many of them don't have any other, any paid streaming services. They have internet and then everything else is free. It's almost like there are those who watch piracy and we don't get involved in any of that stuff. But I think most people want to watch stuff legitimately. And I think AVOD you know, offers that. There've also been a lot of great services, you know, the Roku channel is just terrific. Pluto TV is just fantastic. You know, Tubi, IMDb TV is, you know, offering, a, you know, a great deal. This Crackle has been around for a long time. You know, the FilmRise service is new. I should mention that, you know, just so, so to clarify, the FilmRise has its own streaming service, but most of our business is providing content to other platforms like the Roku channel, Pluto TV. And uh, we believe we are the largest independent provider of content to to the AVOD universe. And so, you know, we've become an important component of the AVOD space. And lots of people come to me with asking for advice, including, you know, some of the major new platforms that are starting up AVOD, you know, it's growing in multiple ways. One is in the AVOD space, new channels. So you have IMDb TV is, you know, fairly new. Redbox is, you know, new. Peacock, which is a hybrid AVOD and, you know, SVOD is, you know, is new. So you have those channels that are adding, you know, new audiences, uh, new ways to look at things. Then you have within within the platform themselves, like the Roku channel has grown tremendously over the last year over year. Pluto TV has grown tremendously. We see IMDb TV, you know, growing you know, tremendously. Uh, Tubi's grown tremendously. The other thing is the focus has been in the US, but what we see is a tremendous opportunity internationally because right now, my feeling is that international is maybe three years behind the US. I mean, we've seen the US grow like a, tens of thousands of percentage points since like, you know, in the last three years. And uh, AVOD is nascent in uh, internationally, uh, although we're beginning to release in uh, the UK, in Germany. Uh, we're starting in Latin America now. The final piece I want to leave you with is uh, the so-called fast channels. These are linear, digital linear, which was, uh, I don't know if it was sort of invented, but it was certainly perfected by Pluto TV. It offers a lean back experience, which I never understood, which is you turn on a channel and you in the middle of a TV show, in the middle of a movie. And to me, it makes no sense whatsoever. First thing I notice is generating a lot of streaming traffic, a lot of revenue. And I say, okay, so that took me notice. And uh, my wife came home from work one day and she sat down on the TV and turned it on. I said, what are you watching? She said, I don't know. And I realized, oh, now I get it. I, th I think uh, research has shown that when people uh, search for video on demand, they take seven to eight minutes to identify what they want to watch. And, you know, you're you're tired, you come home from work or the gym or whatever, whatever it is. And, you know, your brain is fried. You just want one of the old fashioned turn on the tube, right? And the, the, the fast experience, the digital ex linear experience enables you to just turn on something that you like. You like true crime, you like mysteries, you like action, just turn on one of those channels. And then it's like, you know, whatever you see, you just, you're just there and you're, you're, you're watching new things. I was a little skeptical of it at first, but we're seeing really, really tremendous growth on the, uh, on the fast channels. With the growth of both AVOD and fast channels, how do you see them, um, sort of growing together as they become more popular? I think the future of AVOD and FAST is going to be a marriage of them so that you put on a FAST channel, you'll be able to rewind to the uh, beginning, fast forward. You'll be able to say, hey, you know what? I like this TV show. I want to go to the first se season, first episode of the show that I'm watching. By having 
having these this functionality of rewinding and you know essentially you you're kind of hooked in through the fast experience but then you immediately you know flip to the v, vod experience and i think that's where the world is heading i'm actually not sure who's got that technology if anybody yet but i certainly feel that that's the future whoever can perfect that and so just being able to seamlessly go from the fast experience to the to the vod experience uh, I, I think is what the future is um and about film rises sort of library you mentioned that your you know your model is basically all revenue stream by selling on to other platforms yeah so we license content in all different ways we have uh, thousands of hours of content that we own outright in perpetuity i'd like to say that's the largest but that's probably the smallest i'd say average we are doing five to seven year licenses in some cases we're doing shorter licenses you know three years but i'd say our our average has been in you know five to seven year licenses but they also range from worldwide rights all media to just very narrow we've done deals for just digital rights in just germany and not nowhere else we've done digital rights for just uk we've just you know done ad supported rights only for just the us i mean so you know we'd like to get as many rights as we can but we also do a cost analysis uh you know uh maybe avod we find to be very valuable but we find transactional subscriptions would not be valuable for that particular content the seller may not have certain rights or may not want to give up the certain rights or may they be asked pricing it out of our what we feel you know uh, is a value proposition we do feel you know blessed and fortunate that we have the financial capacity that we can buy anything i mean i don't think we're buying disney plus but i mean you know short of that i mean we can we, we can afford you know the, the content that we want we have some some, some big uh, bids out there but it always comes back down to does the audience want to see this how badly do they want to see this and that's been our guiding principle and and, and hasn't failed us and you've mentioned that um you may have like a big launch of something on netflix but through sort of targeted buying of shows you can actually end up outdoing the viewership for that on a on an avod platform right and now i mean we're not outdoing stranger things right there have been shows that are in the radar, but maybe, you know, like we have the uh, many of the Gordon Ramsay uh, franchise shows like Hell's Kitchen, Kitchen Nightmares, you know, a lot of his shows. It's certainly not under the radar. It just we felt it was undervalued and it was going to be, you know, stream a great deal more than than uh, in- industry expected. So we have, uh, you know, shows that are under the radar or or, or what we feel are undervalued and, and, and can offer more streaming hours than uh, some more obvious shows and um this is repeatedly pleasantly surprised perplexed platforms and i get many calls saying how do you figure this out and i definitely have had the ma- some of the major platforms offer us lots of money to say can you program can you tell us how you do this and program us for a quarter or a month or something like that for lots of money and i was like no no we're not we're not making this a service situation you know, our, our analytics. We're not trying to sell software or a- anything like that. As you say, as sort of fast channels become more popular and increase in use, do you think this targeting analysis that you have will help to determine scheduling on those linear platforms? There are some fast channels that are that we don't program. So, for example, Pluto TV, we have channels uh, on Pluto TV that Pluto TV uh, programs, but we have, I don't know, about a dozen channels of our own. Uh, we have FilmRise Free Movies, FilmRise Action. We have some branded channels like, you know, Hell's Kitchen, Unsolved Mysteries, where we actually syndicate those out across uh, uh, U.S. services like uh, IMDb TV. We have, uh, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen channels and the Roku channel, we have, uh, I believe, 10 channels, channels like FilmRise Action. What we do there is we program based on who we believe is going to 
to watch at a certain time of day. So even within a genre like action, we're not putting hard R-rated movies, you know, at 12 noon, but at midnight goes into a different place. So, you know, so we are, we are, we're doing that programming. Uh, I, we are beginning to take our fast channels and syndicate them out internationally. So we're working with, uh, for example, Rakuten and other, uh, other platforms internationally. What we're doing is a German language, let's say. So uh, in the German language, what we're doing is we're on the one hand, finding local content that's produced in Germany, that's popular in Germany. The other thing we're doing is we're taking very popular A-list American content and dubbing the content. Uh, another thing we're doing is we're taking some of our own library shows like uh, Unsolved Mysteries and Forensic Files, and we're actually dubbing them for syndication digitally, both in FAST and VOD. We're doing both internationally. On the subject of FilmRise's own streaming platform, uh, you've said that it's, it's kind of a follower. Are there, are there long plans to develop it further than that to make it something bigger, as we've seen major studios do to sort of create a hub for their own content? Year over year, it's grown so much that we're now at the point of, I think we have, you know, over 30 million downloads of the app. And in terms of uh, monthly active users, we're over uh, over 5 million monthly active users. Still doesn't, does not compete with, you know, say a Roku channel or a Pluto TV, Tubi. But I think we want to firepower the channels. We want to double the growth this year and next year. And I, I kind of have a target of kind of getting to where Pluto and Tubi were a couple of years back, maybe in a year or or two. We don't see ourselves getting into a competition with Amazon, the Roku channel, and we just see growing it to a point where we feel that the service offers something that other services do not. And the different the two differentiators of the FilmRise uh, streaming service. One is that it's very long tail focused. The other thing we're doing that's different than what we're seeing elsewhere is we have our main FilmRise channel, but then we have 21 sub-channels that are completely independent apps that focus on uh, genres. So we have a FilmRise True Crime channel and uh, we have a FilmRise Horror channel and uh, FilmRise Classics, FilmRise Mysteries, FilmRise Comedy, FilmRise Westerns. What we're finding is that in those genres, we're not one of the leading services. We are the largest streaming service in that genre. So interested in classic Westerns, FilmWise Westerns is the largest free service in the world. In fact, it's, I believe it's the largest streaming service for Westerns, period, in the world. FilmWise True Crime is the largest true crime service in the world. It's certainly the largest free uh, true crime service. And so we have about, uh, out of the 21 sub-genres we have, we have about at least 12 that are worldwide market leaders. And so this year, what we plan to do is focus not just on our main channel, but focus on our on promoting our genre channels. So it's really out front and becomes really material. We have, you know, experimented in this space and all of a sudden found ourselves looking around saying, wait, we're number one for these genres. And we're thinking as long as we're number one, let's leverage that and really push that and grow that to be not just a number one, but still a small channel, but number one, you know, larger channel. You know what? We've been advised against doing that. Oh, really? Why have you been advised against it? I, I was advised against doing that early on that I guess part of the way I think and part of my, I guess, secret sauce is whatever anybody else thinks should be done, I like to do the exact opposite. 
opposite. So when people tell me, don't spread yourself thin and build 22 channels, devote it all into one. And I think, why do they tell me this? I don't think they're trying to game me, but I think it strikes me, uh, I guess, as conventional wisdom. And I like to go against the conventional wisdom. And so when people say that to me, it makes me think, wow, you know what? I was going to build another five channels. Let me build another 20 channels. And let me go, you know, uh, you know, uh, full up. We just like doing that. We just like, you know, taking the conventional wisdom and spinning around. We do that with Windows. Uh, we've been from the very, very beginning, you know, we are philosophically a non-window business model. We do enter into some deals with Netflix, HBO Max, you know, Showtime and you know, the traditional television and cable broadcasters and theatrical too. We've had our share of it. It's a very small piece of our business, but uh, I've never believed in Windows and it's part of that whole democratization of the audience. The audience doesn't want to be told, I first have to see it in the theater, then I have to watch it on cable pay-per-view, then I have to buy the DVD and then I have to, you know, watch on basic cable. And then 10 years later, I can watch, you know, for free. The Avod revolution, you know, is a lot about empowering the audience, which is we want to see it. And that's not just Avod. It's also the, you know, the streaming, you know, say Wonder Woman 1984, you know, it's probably a, you know, they say what the necessity is the mother of invention. So you have a pandemic. So you've got to release this outside of theaters and release an HBO Max. And I believe it was like the highest streamed uh, a movie on HBO Max and probably one of the highest stream movies, you know, around. And so again, it comes down to audiences are empowered. People want to be empowered. People like having power. Look at what the Redditors are doing to the hedge funds in the US. People like fooling with other people's heads and people like to be empowered. People like to do their own thing. And, uh, you know, streaming in general and uh, ad supported free streaming in, in specific is really empowered audience to say, I want to watch this now. I'm going to tell you when I'm going to watch it. I want to watch it before. Before it hits the theaters, I want to watch it. I want to pay. I'm willing to pay $30 or $20 to watch it, or I'm willing to pay nothing, but I'll sit through some commercials. It's choice. You know, it's people's choice. Danny Fisher talking to Ollie Hammett. Spanish production company Onza, known for dramas such as TV's Little Coincidences and The Department of Time, has recently branched out into the US Hispanic and Latin American markets via a new Miami base. The company's partnered with former Fox exec Emiliano Kalamazouk to launch the venture and Onza chief executive Gonzalo Sagadia spoke with Oli Hammett about the move and how the company plans to compete with major players in the region as well as the rise of Spanish language content internationally. What do you think are the strategic benefits of uh, Onza having a kind of a branch in the US? I think there's mainly two reasons, but three reasons actually. So the first one is having the right partners. For me, that's very important. Uh, when you are planning to make a business step like this, it's absolutely relevant uh, that you find the right partners. So being able to partnership with Emiliano and Vincenzo uh, was critical for me in uh, in taking the in, in making our mind of making this step to, to put the, the sister company in, in Miami. Secondly, I think there is a clear increase of the, of the production volume in Spanish language for both Latin America and U.S. Hispanic. So I think that we were we were consolidating our model here in Spain. And we thought that there were an opportunity to export our model to Latin America and U.S. Hispanic. And maybe, as you know, uh, one of the things that define ONTA is that we co-produce with the creative talent. So we partnership with them in 
in order to produce the show. So mainly they get two things. The first one is being able to have a bigger involucration on their own projects. Obviously, in mostly of the cases, being the showrunner, having the last decision on non-creative points. Um, And secondly, they share with us profits, revenues, or whatever we can get through the, the production of the show. So first thing is, I mean, finding the right partners. There, I think there was an opportunity on, on the market because of the increase of the uh, production, Spanish-speaking production. And and also, we, we thought that there was an opportunity to explore our model because after six years in Spain, I think that we are consolidating the system here in Spain. It works. The creative people are really happy working with us, having more power decision on, on, on their own shows and also getting more profit from that. And, the th- and finally, sorry, there was one more reason was we have done some co-production between Spain and Latin America. For example, Parot is a co-production with Viacom. Obviously, Viacom has an office here in Spain, but mainly the people behind this is all the creative team in Latin America and JC in Miami. So we did as well the collaboration with Dopamine 4 and 9. So we thought that having a permanent establishment on, on Miami could give us a little bit more power to increase the quality and the frequency of the co-production between Spain and Latin America. How does Unfair propose to grow within the U.S. Hispanic market and the Latin American market? We have several projects uh, in development right now, uh, both, well, actually movies, series, and also podcasts. We are developing one, one podcast. And, you know, I mean, we, we try to follow the same way that we did in Spain. I mean, so we want to develop our own shows, partnership with uh, creative talent, and then approach, you know, network platforms, linear channels, because they are still producing as well, you know, to pitch ourselves and being able to, to produce by ourselves or uh, maybe getting some agreement with uh, production facilities and all this stuff. We're very close with, with a lot of partners in Mexico, in Colombia, which are mainly the, the two biggest production hubs in, in Latin America right now. And also we have our one of our shows uh, developed here in Spain, but in co-production with uh, Latin America company as well, will take place some part of the show in Miami. So we are planning to shoot even in Miami. So that that what we want to do. Um, we would like to work with fiction, but we are open to produce our non-scripted entertainment shows as well. So what's the um, what's the sort of transatlantic show that you have planned? Uh, I cannot give you more, a lot of details because, you know, the other company would like to, to maintain it a little bit more time confidential. Um, but for example, we are working on, on another one. I can I can tell you about that. It's My Dear Buster. I mean, and it's, it's very organic because it's a it's a show about a wealthy Mexican family living in Spain, and so it's it's kind of a succession problem within the family because a new member appears. So it's it's like a comedy, but something that not everything is what it seems to be. So it's it's a, it's a comedy um, and, and it's very organic because, you know, it's, it's wealthy family living in between Spain and Mexico because they have businesses in both countries, uh, which is very normal. There's a lot of families, Mexican and Venezuelan families living in Spain, back and forth with, with Mexico or with Venezuela. So this is one of the shows. I mean, this is not the previous one I was talking about, but this is a different one in which we are actually talking uh, with a Mexican company now to, to make a probably we will try to make a multi-window production system more than an original but let's see what happens in the future so what are the what are the advantages of multiple windows I mean it, it, the way that we have produced uh, little coincidences for example or even at man so we just try to make some pre-sales on different territories on different windows and you can try to take advantage of the fiscal incentives here in Spain um, and maybe you have to put a little bit of money but at the end of the day you have the full full rights of, from the IP on commercial rights worldwide so so 
I think it's a better it's a better system for producers trying to get more revenues from their ore productions. It's a completely different system from our, our original. Probably you cannot get a, a high budget like the ones you get when you produce an original for an Amazon or Netflix or Apple or whatever. So probably it's not so ambitious shows, but, but you can create very good shows and you can retain the rights internationally. You mentioned obviously working with Mexican companies and companies in Latin American territories. Is that going to be key to your expansion in the region, working with local producers? Sure. I mean, definitely working with local talent. Um, probably in, in, an, in, a, in, in the first uh, stage, definitely we will be producing with, with local producers, uh, partnering with them. And actually, we are, we are now in conversation with a couple of them in Colombia and, and in Mexico. But, but I mean, at the end of the day, we, we would like to be able to produce by our own the, the shows as well, like, like we do in Spain. So we are just entering in the market and so little by little we will we will need to grow and to create our full business unit uh, over there probably in the future it means that we need to open up a new base in colombia or in mexico or whatever so but let's see i mean step by step the decision was obviously to open the office in miami and not buenos aires or mexico city or bogota what was the decision to move to the u.s well i think that miami is the base of the hispanic world for u.s and latin america so it's like it's like it's like latin america inside the u.s it's very close to mexico it's just three hours flight you have over there i mean i mean hbo now it seems that they are moving but viacom is in miami hbo is in miami apple is in miami amazon has a team in miami obviously they have a big team in mexico as well but for example for exclusive there are people working in, in miami so i mean definitely you cannot attend the full region for miami but there are some some big companies that are based in miami and and also because uh, it makes sense but also uh, vincenzo our senior vice president for I mean, development and production. He was actually based in, in, in Miami, so everything you know was aligned, and so we decided that the Miami was was going to be the best place. And you mentioned um, talent, working with talent. That's obviously been Onfa's model in the past, uh, and I've read that you're planning to continue that uh, in Latin America. What are the advantages? I think that it's a win-win uh, deal because we can we can do for the creative people what they don't want to do or they don't know to do. I mean, financial structure controlling legal affairs, business affairs. So all those things which are also very important for the success of a production are things that probably are not the ones that a creative guy would like to take care of that. And those are things that we, I think that we do very well. And at the same time, they, they support us, uh, or they support us on the creative side, which obviously we have also our local staff working for fiction shows, but it was on our DNA. So since the very beginning that we set up on we realized it was in the middle of the big crisis of 2008 so which in Spain was a little bit longer than in other countries around, around the world so there was a lot of creative people outside the the big companies that they, they were working for big companies in you know some previous years so we our DNA it's, it's, it's based on that it's, it's, so we need to co-produce with these people and, and also now it's very common so runners and but seven years ago it was not so clear so they, they don't have the role that they have today on producing shows so we started to offer them that role and it works as um, when something works I think that what you need to do is to try to improve it and try to grow with it and so what that's exactly what we are doing we are trying to improve the, the model in spain obviously continuously and at the same time after six years we think that is is on a point 
in which we we think that we can try to export it because it's 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 consolidating, but at the same time, it's a little bit consolidated. How far back do the plans for Onfa Americas go? When when was it first sort of talked about? I think we started to talk about this. Uh, I would say half a year ago. Oh, so okay. after after the lockdown, we we started to think that probably we can we can try to to start the expansion of the international growth of the company. And again, obviously, because there was an opportunity to partnership with Emiliano and Vincenzo. So sometimes you have something in mind and there is something that gives you the opportunity to take seriously that opportunity. And I think in, in this in this, in this occasion, that, that's exactly what happened. So we were thinking on the expansion of, of Onza and suddenly, you know, we realized that there was the opportunity to partnership with, with Vincenzo and with Emiliano. We, we, and we say, okay, that's a signal. That's, that's the right moment to do that. So you, you felt it was the right moment, despite, you know, obviously there still being a, a pandemic and Spain was sort of getting better by then, but the US was still in a very bad place with, with COVID. Um, did that affect your decision at all? I mean, I think that every country is suffering COVID very strong. There's a lot of pain in all countries. I mean, people are losing loves, uh, relatives uh, continuously. So, but at the same time, you need to get over this and you need to look to the future and you need to try to see, I mean, this will end in some point and we need to be ready for the future. And obviously, as you know, you know, starting a, a, a TV show is is, is a long term uh, process. So you start with the development, you start trying to attach the right talent, and then you try to pitch, and then negotiations. So obviously, this is we know that this is that we need to invest some time in order to put the machine to work. But at the same time, the lockdown has provoked the growth of the OTT platforms. Uh, there, there are there are much much more subscribers now than uh, one year ago. So it's because people realize that you know the way in which we are going to enjoy our free time is going to change probably a little bit longer than purely the uh, the strong effects of the COVID. So we decide, okay, let's, let's, I mean, it's always, this is very reflexive, but in some point you need to risk and there is a bet on this. So we we analyze the market, we, we see what could be the opportunities, we see what could be our initial slate to develop, we found the right partner, but in some point you need to, to make the step and take some risk. And I mean, always, there's going to be problems always. So when is going to be the perfect moment? You don't know. So try to take advantage of the opportunity that you have for now and let's see what's happening in the future. I mean, we are very confident. We are excited about this project and I'm pretty sure that we will be starting production and negotiations very soon with, with some of our shows over there. And when that does come, who are you going to be targeting? We would like to work, obviously, OTT platforms, you know, are the ones that are demanding more fiction shows right now. But at the same time, we would like to work with Pan Latin America networks, HBO, now HBO Max, or I don't know, DirecTV or Fox. I mean, obviously, all of them, they, they have all the, all the big channels they have now, their own OTT platform. So probably it's not clear yet what the strategy is going to be between targeting content for the linear channel or if everything is going to be a first window of the OTT and then they will, you know, take advantage of that shows to put them on the linear channels. But at the end of the, of the day, there is a lot of opportunities, Disney+, Plus, Amazon, Pluto, so many, many. So obviously we, we, we will be targeting OTT platforms. But again, linear channels, free, chan- free to be channels, there is still an opportunity. We don't want to focus 
only on fiction. For example, we have some entertainment shows developed here in Spain, and something that we would like to do as well is to to find a first window with some uh, free-to-air channels in in the region, and then being able to share with them the IP rights. And this is something I think that that could be new as well in the market. Now, obviously, people normally try to get to remain full rights, but I I think that there should be more collaboration in, in the future and more partnership in the future between with the OTT platforms and the free-to-air channels. They are reconsidering what kind of content they should be offering to the public and what their strategy should be for the near future. And I think that in this rethink of the market, of the business, of the free-to-air channel, then there is always an opportunity and we would like to be there ready to take advantage of any opportunity that could appear. And just finally, what, what do you think is behind the rise in Spanish language content over the last few years? Because the demographic's always been there, but it's just now starting to come to the world stage. I think it's because we have very good creativity. So we have very great creative talent. I think that we have a great production quality and we can offer great talent and great production at a lower prices than obviously US, uh, UK, France, Italy. And also I think that in the past there were some travels for the Hispanic accent to travel around Latin America. And I think that now it has disappeared. So the Latin America audience is now accepting the Spanish accent. So I would say great creative talent, great production quality, lower budget for getting the same quality, and, and also the capacity of the Spanish accent to travel all around the world. And La Casa de Papel is definitely one of the biggest examples. No? So I, I, I think that those are the reasons because we are now in the focus of all the international market when we uh, premiere a new show. And and also because there has been a lot of Spanish shows that have been adapted in, in the US. And this is something that always put the focus on, on your territory as well. Now we are working with NBC for uh, Little Coincidences, someone out there. They are planning to produce the pilot. So different shows that have been adapted to the US and, and, and also definitely this is a, a big contribution for the rise of Spanish uh, companies and the Spanish productions. Gonzalo Sagardia from Onza talking to Ollie Hammond. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.